Hi, this is Open Source Futures and I'm Eddie Chu, where I discuss current news through the lens of long-term trends and futures thinking. I want to talk about something that is often thought of as boring and uninteresting, so I'm going to talk about demographics. Demographics is about the characteristics of a population, not just how many people there are in a country, but their age structure, gender breakdown, education, health, ethnicity, religion, maybe even income, wealth, and social characteristics. Some of these might be familiar to people and others not so. The number of people might be important as a proxy for market size, but you will need something about spending power as well to truly size up the demand. You would also need to know their age structure to see how much they might spend and on what, the, what, a, and what things they might be spending on. A large market of young people is not as attractive as a market of many families for the same population, for instance. And a market full of older people will have a different consumption profile from a market full of families. If you were, say, a healthcare company, you might prefer a market of rich old people who can spend on drugs than a market of relatively healthy young people, for instance. Demographics could be said to be a foundation of the country. What a country is and what it can do is dependent on who the people are and their condition. We can just look, for instance, at the age structure of a country and infer some economic characteristics and potential. A country that is relatively youthful can become an economically productive country, or it can become an unstable country if their aspirations are not met, for instance. A country that is aging will have to expand healthcare spending and social safety nets and require productivity measures such as robotics and technology to make up for the elderly in retirement. A country that is healthy can afford to have an underdeveloped healthcare system for a while, while a country that is wrecked with infectious diseases will see some constraints on economic growth, but might still develop if you can develop a competent healthcare system in the short term. Education is also hugely important. A country with a developed education system can bring out more potential from their people than a country struggling to create a working education system. With more education, people have more knowledge and skills that can enable a developing economy. So demographics is an important concept to grasp. An aging country has a few ways to keep their economy going. They can extend their country's retirement age and create, say, annuity systems so that they can continue to receive an income even in retirement. They will need to restructure their healthcare systems and to focus on long-term care, especially for those with long-term conditions and various disabilities. An aging country could also encourage immigration into their own country to support economic activity and into the healthcare system. But it would have to be done at a rate acceptable to society. People in general are just naturally conservative with a small c in the sense of being afraid of change manner, not referring to political system or ideologies. Immigration would entail getting people to get used to something new, something that they might find uncomfortable with. Immigration, as we've seen, also triggers nativist feelings about the country's resources being supposedly siphoned off, in air quotes, off to a group of people or supposedly undeserving people, again in quotes. And I think this is where a lot of geopolitical analysis is often missing in. A lot of people seem to be projecting China's growth on a straight line chart and that its rapid growth will continue. But if you look at the demographics, that will not be the case. It will be extremely challenging for China to sustain its high rate of growth at even, say, 5%. And I would not be surprised if its economy starts to slow down in the 2030s to, say, the 3 or 4%. So 
This is because as the, as the society ages, the country has to find more resources to take care of its elderly. It will also have to build a social safety net that will take care of the old people. It will then have to find people to work in the healthcare and medical sector, which it has to reform seriously and to stamp out the corruption inside it. Then it will have to find other people to work in the healthcare sector, so it might have to... <laughs> I know for a country which, is, which has over 1 billion people, it sounds strange, but it might have to consider some kind of immigration to top up its healthcare system if it cannot do it by itself with its own people in due course. But for China to take on immigration would also require changes in its political narrative. I'm thinking that it might be difficult for a nationalist society to welcome new immigrants into its midst. So the picture for the US is more optimistic in this regard. Faced with an aging population, there is at least a tradition of immigration to prop up the economy and to care for its elderly. But that is assuming the US remains a relatively open society, which given the recent Trump administration has demonstrated, that is not always the case. Europe is worrying in this regard. Its track record of openness is not great, especially for how immigration has become weaponized and partisan, and the ease with which people can accept that immigrants pose problems in their society even when there is no evidence for it. So, just back to China again, for people to say that China will just keep growing ever more into the future, they're in fact saying uh, that China is able to overcome its aging population and that they can do something that Japan has not yet done. These uh, so-called China boosters are also saying that indirectly, China would have found some way to dramatically improve their productivity performance in absolute terms. You're looking at a wholesale change in culture for that to happen across society, in its workplace, in its society, in its thinking of the role of women, uh, in its thinking of its rural-urban divides. So you're asking for a tall order to say that China's productivity performance can surpass that of the developed economies. So I find those opinions really hard to believe. China will have to find some difficult things, do some difficult things to keep growing. It will have to find various ways to, de to deleverage its debt, reduce its local government debt without sparking off political crises. It might have to liberalize a bit of their financial markets and become more transparent to global investors. It's possible, but a difficult sell. And after all, what, might, <laughs> what else might this process reveal? There aren't a lot of easy decisions to be made anymore. The easy ones have been, the so-called easy ones have been done already. And even Zhu Rongzi, who was one of the architects of China's liberalization and entry into the WTO system, he had to do a lot of work to make the to reform the SOEs and make them more efficient. And that's just one of the things that he did. That is not to say that China cannot become rich. Rather, the rate at which it gets richer will slow down, right? So as it's society and economy changes, uh, China's leaders might continue to have to make tweaks to some long-cherished ideas and give and try to figure out how to give their economy an innovation boost. It would have to do this at the same time as the economy and society gets oriented towards taking care of the elderly. I guess all of this leads to this niggling question of mine, and I wonder if the assertive China we see today is really just responding to the slower growth prospects of the future that what we see today is a calculated strategy to lock in as much influence and security as it can to forestall the lower growth prospects of the future. In other words, China's leaders think that it had better act now because it might be harder to act later. So what might this counterfactual be? 
In a world where Chinese leaders are more confident of the future, perhaps you might play a lower-key diplomacy and slowly build up allies across the world rather than force countries to make choices now. Perhaps it might show a more confident engagement with other countries. It is easier to see how the US might continue on its advantage by continuing to be open to the world's people and working with various countries, EU, India, UK, Japan, uh, they come to mind. But we also have to remember that at other times, those other countries will also be acting independently. So there you go, I just discussed just one aspect of demographics, the age structure. And you can see how that has implications for longer-run economic dynamics, the social welfare system, and the political system. We haven't even touched on yet on issues of religion, gender, education, the other aspects of demographics, and yet there is already so much to discuss. So demographics is an example of a kind of certainty that we uh, know how the trend will proceed because uh, demographics in demographics, uh, what people say is that most of the people born into the near future, say the 10 or 20 year time, time frame, most of these people are already alive today. So there's a lot of weight to project uh, what the future population size might be and what the age structure might be. So there are other things that are less uncertain, sorry, they are more uncertain that's difficult to tell. So for instance, uh, there is this thing, uh, I mean, I frame it in my own way, I call it openness and closeness. So it is very difficult to tell whether a society will generally have an open orientation or a closed orientation in a variety of domains. So I'm not just talking about so-called liberal, being liberal and being more conservative, um, but rather it's more of a, again, it's more of an orientation towards uh, openness to change. Uh, so for instance, it could be um, an openness not just to things like the LGBT or all the controversial things about race, it could be even just uh, on man more mundane things such, such as gender, age, disabilities, and neurodiversity. How a society treats these people who are less empowering is a signal for how a society might be open or not in general. So another way that I think is clearer is in the globalization and nationalism ends of this spectrum. So. Uh, is there a preference for clinging on to the country for a source of identity or is there some confidence in engaging with the world? So that's another way to tell whether a society is uh, more geared towards openness or geared towards closeness. But then I have to add that people's attitudes on these things are diverse and extremely nuanced. And a polarity approach, right, so presenting these two ends in the extremes might not always capture all the complexity around all of these attitudes. So what you can do is that in this little exercise that you might be doing, you can add little vignettes, little stories that can capture a slice of the kinds of complex attitudes that people have. For instance, you might actually have uh, LGBT activists who might be extremely nationalistic and be anti-immigrant. So that is actually a kind of possibility, although we don't think of it uh, as much. So, uh, so at this point, I want to also point out uh, other tips to think about when you look at social trends. It is very tempting to foist your own values into this exercise and to say that some values are good and some values are bad. No, the analyst must avoid this kind of judgy language. Uh, you, cannot, you should not foist your own perspective on this kind of exercise. Uh, what you can do is 
what you have to realize, sorry, is that people have values and they hold on to them for various reasons. So again, back to the imaginary LGBT uh, anti-immigrant person. Uh, so they have openness towards some kinds of things and they have closeness towards some kind of things. And it's not the role of the analyst to kind of uh, judge this, uh, but to lay out the kinds of values and the kinds of facts uh, when, when, they, when people adopt one perspective or another. So for instance, uh, if you have uh, people who might be extremely patriarchal, the analyst can lay out the economic and social consequences of, for example, limiting women to home-based roles. Or uh, if someone is uh, extremely socially conservative and doesn't want to talk about uh, disabilities or elderly or, uh, or gender issues, the analyst could point out instead the kinds of uh, burdens or the kinds of uh, economic obstacles that these people have as they move through society that is unfriendly towards their interests. So rather than confronting uh, people in a workshop, for instance, with all these kinds of things that you might disagree with, a more kind of objective manner, to, a way to do it, is to present them with the information and see how they feel about this information. And if possible, try to get people of uh, representing those interests or those identities to come and just talk to them and see how they might uh, how they might, how their attitudes might change as a result. So again, uh, there are no. It's very, it's very difficult to to. It it will be very tricky to say that something is good and something is bad, um, but rather try to take a more objective understanding and try to see what might be good or bad, even for uh, seemingly terrible positions. So like I said, again, there are reasons why people might not want to be open to immigrants or don't want to engage with the world. It could be a mix of tradition and security, wanting to hold on to present circumstances, or having a, son, a strong sense of threat about what the outside world might bring in. Uh, but it could also come from a kind of contentment with the present situation. If these are the views that are being expressed, then so be it. But they, what the analyst can do is to present information to challenge these assumptions and force people to confront the flip sides of what's being offered. So uh, you, you should also not to uh, be too enthusiastic about a kind of particular position. For example, you might, you might want to uh, agree that sometimes immigration can cause social instabilities or that being more open to global flows will cause economic and financial insecurity. Those things are somewhat true. So you have to uh, be balanced about the kinds of positions you hold. So again, it is very good to kind of wanting to extend care towards marginalized groups and increase public spending. But uh, there are also uh, obstacles or costs to those positions as well that they typically require higher sense of social solidarity and necessitating higher taxation rates which might make the country uh, less competitive. So all of these are not uh, simple issues. They have different facets to them and a good scenario process and a good facilitation process will also enable people to see the different kinds of positions and to see where they might land on. There are other kinds of dangers as well. So I would also hesitate for people to make straight line correlations between seemingly uh, related things. So again, like I said, like I mentioned earlier with the imaginary LGBT anti-immigrant person. So uh, it's not always the case that people who uh, take a kind of position will also adopt similar position on another topic. 
so for instance, there is no clear link between greater education and openness. It is not always the case that uh, people who will be more so-called enlightened in quotes as education increases. Nationalism is also something that can be a product of education. I mean, I'm just thinking of uh, uh, Nazism in uh, Germany. So Germany already then was an industrial and scientific powerhouse. And yet, you had people who were happy to take on and support Nazism at that time. And there are complex relationships between education and rationality. So I'm always reminded of how the hijackers and terrorists who committed the 9-11 attacks were actually well-educated middle-class families from Saudi Arabia. You could also say that education could instead give people a stronger justification of their beliefs, not less. So you might not know, but there was this uh, cult in Japan called Aum Shirinko. So they were made up of scientists and engineers who had the knowledge to handle sarin gas. So it's not an easy thing to create sarin gas at all, let alone to store it long enough to commit an attack. So when it comes to ideologies and education, um, it is not an easy thing at all to say what's really going on. Uh, so I think, but what we can say is, uh, we can we can say something about fanaticism, and we can broadly say that uh, uh, how fanaticism is sometimes um, how people have argued it is that fanaticism is a modernity uh, construct. It comes about as um, because we live in this kind of fluid modernity where a lot of things can't be held on to. We don't have a lot of beliefs and ideas that we can hold on to. Um, so some people actually find the uh, solidity that fanaticism provides as a kind of comfort, and so they gravitate naturally towards that. And of course, that's a problem when you have uh, when you have armed violence that's associated with fanaticism, and then you get your civil wars. And if you combine that with uh, a political media ecosystem that translates to uh, a political deadlock, then you get even tricky things. So. Um, you might also kind of realize that, um, so I've given you something that's more of a certainty. So I've given you demographics is an example of a certainty. And I've also given you something like ideologies, so which are uncertainties out of you that it's very difficult to tell which kind of ideologies will dominate. So I've given you an example of what we will call a predetermined trend, which is your demographics versus the uncertainty and impactful trend, which is your ideologies. So you can use this, you can uh, play with this uh, so-called predetermined things and, uh, and uncertain things, you can uh, mix them up uh, to generate your scenarios. So that's, uh, so I've given you this few things to play with. I've given you the concept of this predetermined trend, and I've also given you this concept of uh, uh, uncertainty and uh, what sometimes we call polarities, which is uh, sometimes extremities of uh, the uncertainties that I've told you about. So these are the things to bear in mind as we continue on. Uh, you might have actually realized that I've used this kind of language before in previous episodes, and I'll continue to use these kinds of language, and I'll explain them as I go along as well. So as usual, thanks for your time. If you enjoyed listening to this, uh, consider contributing to the Patreon at patreon.com slash opensourcefutures, one word, opensourcefutures. Or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee slash opsourcefutures. That's opsourcefutures. Thank you and see you next time.